It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In the Old Covenant, the people weren't coming to make sacrifice so that those sacrifices would remove their sins. They brought the sacrifices in recognition of their need to have their sins removed. To remember their sinfulness. And to wait on God's promised deliverance, the Savior, the true sacrifice. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, because this is true, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written, of me in the scroll of the book. And so in that passage, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, Jesus says He came to obey the will of the Father to be the sacrifice. When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and sin offering. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do Your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by, the will, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The old covenant was a yearly reminder that I need a Savior. And the new covenant is we have a Savior. The old has gone and the new has come. And every priest stands every day at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, Jeremiah 31, 33. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We don't go every year to a temple and make a sacrifice because... The temple of heaven holds the perfect sacrifice. His name is Jesus. That last song sparked my mind to think of this passage. I'm studying the book of Hebrews in preparation for a sermon series in Hebrews in the spring and summer and fall and winter and <laughs> and, 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 and. And in, in, I'm in Hebrews 10 right now studying, prepping, and I'm telling you, I can't wait. I love Psalms. I can't wait to get to Psalm 41 so we can do uh, some other things and then get to Hebrews. Because listen, I think you need to know that you have been made perfect by the blood of Jesus. You come to a daddy who loves you because he loves his son and he will never reject you. And your sins are covered and forgiven and removed. And now you're being made perfect. You're being sanctified. 
in the blood of Christ. The man of sorrows, what a name, for the Christ, for me was slain. So that he might carry me on his breast to the Father every day. Let's pray. Father, oh, the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, the Savior that has saved to the uttermost those who believe. There is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one that comes near to you, Jesus. You are the one and only Savior of those who have trespassed the covenant, who have gone and strayed in their own sinful, willful disobedience. And now you have brought them home because you are the older brother that holds no grudge but gives freely to those who come home. Oh God, you have made us perfect in Christ and you are sanctifying us even today by the blood of Jesus and the Spirit which has sealed us. There is no work that we have added, no work we can take away. You have done it all. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the great I Am. We praise and worship you. And we ask that as we turn to Psalm 36, with our hearts and our minds, we would just be overwhelmed, overjoyed with delighting in you. Make yourself the delight of our souls that we might live forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 36 is our passage this morning. And I want to call your attention to some things. We're going to read the passage first. And then we're going, to, uh, we're going to look in depth at this passage, the 12 verses. In Psalm 36 and Psalm 37, David aims to help us delight in God. Delight in God. Now, I've entitled this message, Delighting in God. And the first thing we must do in delighting in God is hate sin. You cannot delight in God and love sin. If, John says, you love this world, you do not love the Father. And the love of the Father is not in you. So if you're here today and you're holding on to your sin and you're loving your sin, you are lying to yourself and everyone around you if you say you love the Father. You cannot love your sin and love the Father. You cannot walk in worldliness and love your worldliness, and bow down to your worldliness, and then come to church on Sunday and feel good about delighting in God. You're not delighting in God. You're a phony. And this passage points us to that fact, that if you are going to delight in God, first you must hate your sin, and second you must know who God is on your behalf. And third, we're commanded to pray and seek God and the delight of God in our life. So, this passage, Psalm 36, I think, is key to our growth and sanctification, our understanding of who God is and who we should be in Christ. David writes it as the servant of the Lord. Only twice in the Psalms is he called the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord should be a title that indicates to you something very important because Jesus picks up that title as the servant of the Lord later. David is writing prophetically here. He's teaching us of the new covenant, I believe, in this passage. The Bible says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes 
that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are troubled in deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble with his own, while on his own bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So the first thing we see in this passage, the first point of our sermon is that we do not, we do not need to be enticed by the lies of sin. We do not need to be enticed by the lies of sin. Now, verses 1 and 2, I'm just going to tell you up front, are beyond me. They're beyond my abilities. I don't feel bad because they're beyond most people's abilities. Even the translators struggle with verses 1 and 2. It's very difficult Hebrew. It's very broken. It's hard to render a good English equivalent. Okay? But there are two options. In the NIV, if you're looking at an NIV, no joke. I'm not joking. The NIV is a good translation. A lot of people joke about the NIV, nearly inspired verse and all these joking things. The NIV is a great English translation. You'll notice that in the NIV, the first verse is translated, I have a message from God in my heart. I have a message. It's David saying, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. In the ESV, which I'm preaching from, and most of you are probably reading from at this point because I've converted you. In the, NIV, in the, in the ESV, excuse me, and in the NASB, Aaron missed his chance. Miss, y'all tell him, I bragged on the NASB. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Okay, so we have the choice and the interpretive decision to make. Is David saying God has given me a word about the wickedness in the heart of the wicked to tell them of their deceitfulness and the way that sin has deceived them into being sinful? Or is God saying this is what goes on in the heart of every sinful person? transgression speaks to them, wickedness talks to them and deceives them and brings them to believe the lie that sin is good and God is bad. I take the second. Not because the ESV says it, but because I think as best I can, grappling with it all week, that's the best I can do, that I think this is David saying, sin personified here speaks to you in your heart. And it deceives you to believe that sin is good and that you have no need to fear God. And therefore, you go on in your sin, not hating it, but loving it and despising God. You cannot love your sin and love God. If you're here today and you are loving pornography and you are loving adultery and you are loving fornication and you are loving stealing and you are loving lying and you are loving any form of idolatry, whether it be football or an American dream, if you are loving these things, you hate God. You either love the world or you love God. You cannot serve two masters. Or as John says, if the love of the world is in any man, he is not a child of God. And David is saying the same thing. Why? Because sinful people 
Every one of them, not a few of them, all of them are carried about in their sin and they are deceived by that sin because it's talking to them constantly. Oh, buddy, listen. You're not hurting anybody by clicking on that image on the computer. It's a harmless sin. It's, it's not even really a sin. Because if your wife loved you, she would take care of your needs. But she doesn't love you that much, so she doesn't help you with your sinful desires. And she doesn't help you with your man-centered desires. And she doesn't help you even if you're a godly man and you just have a godly desire to be fulfilled sexually. So listen. What you need to do is click on that image because it doesn't cause her issues. It doesn't cause you issues. It doesn't treat women like objects. It doesn't enslave anybody. Transgression tells sinners in their heart their sin doesn't hurt anybody. And they have no reason to fear God. He'll understand. Life's hard. It's stressful today. You need to relieve your stress. Having six beers instead of one beer is not a problem. Drink. Be merry. Have a glad heart. I mean, it's just this one time, and your favorite team is playing its biggest rival. Who cares? Pour another strong drink and enjoy the party. It's okay. Sin talks to you in your heart and tells you, it's okay. It's excusable. It's understandable. God loves you so much that He wants you to have the riches of this world. God loves you so much that He wants to give you that boat and He wants to give you that second house and He wants to give you that beautiful Ferrari that you longed for for so long. He wants you to have it. God loves you. Sinfulness deceives you into believing you can love it and love God. And it will buy your conscience off. Because you'll look at those images you know you shouldn't look at and you'll go immediately and try to do a good thing. And then you'll justify it. You'll say, I know I looked at pornography, but this afternoon I did a good thing. God loves me. Transgression deceives you. Sinfulness talks to you and it tells you, don't hate me. Don't hate me. Don't hate me. Love me. I'm good for you. Do not be enticed by the lies of sin. They deceive you. They bring you down to the pit. They will destroy you. They tell you there is no fear of God. Sin flatters you into believing that you're strong enough to withstand the holiness of God. One of my favorite professors in college, in the history department, he was the chair of the department, and he was a rank atheist and a pagan. He lived a worldly lifestyle. He skated on several instances where he should have been fired because he was a brilliant man. We sat in his office. The last day that I saw him and had a conversation with him in person, I saw him but later but didn't talk to him, we sat across the desk. He had my senior portfolio in his hand, and he said, what are you going to do with your life, Carlton? I said, I'm going to go into the ministry. I have a deep desire and burden to go preach the gospel to the whole world. He flipped my paper across the desk at me and leaned back in anger. He said, you're wasting your brain. You could be a fine historian, but you're wasting your life. I said, I don't think so, Dr. Bowen. I believe that if 
death and life hangs in the word of the gospel. And if I don't tell, who will tell? Mr. Dr. Bowen, don't you know that Jesus is calling you to be saved? He laughed. i never forget that laugh. It was a laugh like I'd never heard before. It was this almost audibly wicked laugh. And he said to me, I tell you what, if you're right and I'm wrong, when he takes you, leave me a suit of asbestos so I can survive the fire. Six years later, he looked at my cousin, who had just come into his program. He said, hey, you're Ken the Carlton Weathers? Yeah. He said, hey, what's he doing? He's a pastor. She shook his head. He's wasting his life. That night, driving home drunk, he hit head on in a tree. He believed the lies of wickedness until he died. And when he opened his eyes, hear me. He stared face to face with the judge of the living and the dead. And he knew, I have been taught by sin a deception. I have wasted my life. I have sown my wild oats and now I stand in judgment. He burns in hell today. I didn't say it, he said it. Until his last dying breath, he believed the lies of sin in his heart. And he rejected God. He had no fear of God. And he listened to the flattery of his sinful desires. Some of you are the same way. You're not as outward with your hatred of God as he was because you're sitting in a church and it's not nice to do it that way. But even while I say this in your heart, you're saying, man, he's going too far. He's making too big a deal out of this. I mean, come on. It's just one little thing. God doesn't care. If you're going to love God, if I'm going to love God, we've got to learn to hate sin. We've got to see sin for what it is. It is a deceitful. It is a lying. It is a conniving. It is a robbing. It is a thieving. It is a killer of men's souls. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Speaking to the depth at which it goes, it is replete throughout our members. Mind, body, soul, wrapped up in sin. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Romans 3.18, at the end of Paul's description of worldliness and sinfulness, he says this very verse this is the definition of a lost man. They have no fear of God in their soul. They do not fear God before the eyes of their soul. They think they are self-justified in the way they're living. Why? Because they're flattered and their iniquity can't be found out. They think they're going to skate by unnoticed. It's the only way that you can sit here and hear this and appease your mind. Because otherwise you'd be so angry you would storm out. If you're a lost person sitting here taking this, I just got to tell you, I don't understand you. The only way you can sit and listen to this kind of preaching and this kind of teaching from the Word of God is to lie to yourself and listen to the voice of sin. If you're living in sin... In this room right now, I'm telling you, 
Come to Jesus. If you don't, you will die in your sin and he will judge you. Don't believe the deceitfulness of sin. Don't think you're going to skate by. Don't appease it with it being normal to our society. That's another way sin flatters. Oh, you're just like everybody else. You stand around the water cooler, you're kind of feeling a little guilty about what you've done, and then they start joking and laughing about it because they're all doing you think, see, I'm just like them, I'm not so bad, I'm a good guy. Normal. Don't believe the flattery. Don't believe the deceitfulness. Some of you flatter yourself into thinking that you're so good that God would never judge you. He just wouldn't dare do it. I mean, I'm nice to people. I'm kind from my heart. I give great amounts of my earnings away. I, I've, helped, I've helped the poor in West Anniston just yesterday, Carl, and I came and served with you. I, I ran the inflatable. God loves me because little kids have a good time. I gave up a half a Saturday for Jesus. Surely he'll excuse me. No. Because if you love sin, you hate him. If you hate him, you have no dwelling place with him. The first thing to understand this passage is that we do not need to believe the deceit and the lies of sin. Because it brings us to verses 3 and 4. Where our words and of our mouth are troubled and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. There is a downgrade effect of sin. You start off doing okay, and then you begin to believe sin's lies, and you become a man of untruth. And you become deceitful yourself, you notice in verse 3. And then in verse 4, you go further into plotting while on your bed. You set yourself in a way that is not good. You do not reject evil. You go from being deceived to being willful in your own lies to being a plotter after other men's souls. Sin is not passive. Sin is aggressively seeking to kill you. Satan is not passive. He is aggressively seeking to kill you. He wants your soul. Don't be deceived. Second section, verses 5 through 9. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house or the fatness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In this section, we see, secondly, that we need to be enticed by the goodness of God. Do not be enticed by sin, but be enticed by the goodness of God. Some people don't understand this passage very well because they see this, this strong speech against sin, and then this shift, just suddenly, you saw it. In verse 4 to verse 5, there's just... Boom, it just goes from talking about sin to talking about God. And they say, this must, there's something missing. Somebody redacted this passage and narratively put it together. This can't be one man writing at one time. I disagree. It is absolutely the work of one man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking of the prophet, talking to us of not just his day but of our day. He's saying this, look, sin wants your soul. 
Sin seeks to deceive you. Don't be enticed by sin. Don't be led astray by sin. Be led by God. Be enticed by God. He holds up two opposites. Sin and God. He says either you will love this or you will love that. But you can't love both. He's comparing and contrasting. Now I want you to see what it is about God that you're to love. What is it about God that's so lovely? What is it that's so beautiful? First of all, it is His covenant love. Verse 5, He says, Steadfast love, hesed is the Hebrew. Hesed, it means covenant love. It means never-ending love. It means purposeful love. It means faithful love. In the Scriptures, often steadfast love and faithfulness are put together. Because God is faithful to love His children always, uninterruptedly. He gives Himself to them. So first of all, we are to be enticed by the lovely, loveliness of God that is held in His covenant love for us. We're to love Him like we love a father. Because even when we are at our worst moment of our worst day, God loves us. And He's faithful to us. Again, John says that the, though, though the little children need to learn to be faithful and the older men have experienced the love of God's faithfulness, Paul says that we are not to be discouraged. Don't you know that when you are unfaithful, God is faithful? The first thing that entices us about God is He is a faithful lover of our soul. Sin lies to you. God tells you the truth, children. Sin lies to you. God tells you the truth. He is a lovely God, first of all. Second of all, in verse 6, it is His righteous judgment which we are told to love. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O oh Lord. Romans eleven thirty three 33 is brought to mind here where Paul says, Oh, the depths of the inscrutable ways of God's love. No one can find them out. This passage is saying the same thing. Look, His righteousness is beyond our comprehension. His judgment is perfect to the uttermost. And it's because of that that we love Him. There's nothing worse, is there, children, than when your parents tell you one thing and do another. Don't you hate that? I'm glad my kids never had to go through that. Sure. Unfortunately, as human parents, we often lie to our kids, don't we? We tell them something and then we backtrack. And it might be because we're forgetful and it might be because we get frustrated with them after we made them a promise and so we withdraw it. But listen, kids, you can love God and you can be enticed by God because He not only loves your soul, but when He makes you a promise, He never fails to deliver. He saves you and then you sin he doesn't withdraw salvation. God's not an eternal brat. God doesn't say, well, you know, I was going to save you, but you've been pretty bad, so you're out. Pull back my spirit. You're done. Go your way. No. God, children, is lovely. We can love Him. We can be enticed into a relationship with Him because He is a covenant love of faithfulness and He never turns His righteousness into unrighteousness by giving a false judgment or by pulling back a promise. When He tells you something, you can count on it. 
So God is lovely. And we can love Him and be enticed by Him because of His love, because of His righteous judgment. And then in verse 7, again, He brings out the covenant love. Now, in the first passage, He's talking about the immensity of God's love in verse 5. In verse 7, He's talking about the extravagant nature of God's love. How precious, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. His love is extravagant. He goes to extremes to show you that He loves you. What am I talking about? What greater love hath any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends? Romans 5, he says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When I was an enemy of God, God died for me. That's how extravagant His love is. It knows no end. It is immense and it is bountiful. It knows no end. Jesus draws on this when he talks to us about prayer. He says, you have not because you ask not. Jesus is confident that when we ask God for godly things, God always answers. He has no, he says, listen. You people are sinful daddies. And when your child comes to you ask for bread, do you give him a rock? When he asks for a fish, do you hand him a serpent? No. So how would you believe that God, being a much greater daddy than you, would ever do such a thing? Seek, ask, knock, and you will find, Jesus says. John 10 says that he has given us abundant life. Pressed down, shaken, and overflowing with the love of God. His love is immense and His love is extravagant. His love is faithful and His love is true. His judgments never cease to fail to bring about the promises that He has given to you. You should be enticed by His goodness, people. You should love Him because while He's loving you this way, sin is seeking to destroy and kill and steal you. This is the contrast in Psalm 36. In verse 9, excuse me, in verse 8, it speaks again of the extravagant nature of God's resources. Oh, well, maybe He loves us, but He has no way to bless us. And the psalmist says, no. You eat from the fatness of His house. You drink rivers of delight which can't have any end. Again, we find the great contrast here between sin and God. Listen, you're lost. You're here. You say, listen. You're talking about sin in some way. I don't know because I'm having a good time in my sin. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about, preacher. Because with the, the way I see it, I'm having fun in life. But it'll come to a crashing halt. Sinfulness runs out of delight. How do we know this is true? The easiest way for me to tell you about this is to talk to you about sexual sin because sexual sin is perverse in i mean it's it's uh it's uh perver it's it's pre prevalent in our society we're eaten up by it all of us in some form or fashion are affected by it and it never is enough we've always said that we've always said but now we can see it in in the brain we can see the latest studies show that those who view pornography take it in like crack cocaine. It has the same effect. 
What do I mean by that? The addictiveness of it is not intrinsic in itself. The addictiveness, in other words, not chemical in the, in the pornography. The chemical is in you. Just like cocaine. You can walk away from cocaine. It has no addictive in itself nature that we know of. The addictive thing about cocaine is in your brain. What it fires in your brain that you get addicted to having and can't do without. Okay? So, what do I mean when I'm talking about the enticement of sin? You go to your computer, you open it up, nobody's around. There's no safe eyes, no covenant eyes, no warning systems, no nothing. I'm just going to look right here at this one picture. And you click on that picture. You Google search that word. You look at something you shouldn't see. At first, you slam it shut, you back away, you think, man, I shouldn't do that. It feels bad. I feel kind of dirty. But what's happened in your mind is endorphins have fired off and a good feeling starts to happen. You say, later you say, boy, that would feel good to have that. It's been a hard day. I'm really tired. I'm stressed out. My wife's been really mean. The computer comes open and we go back to that image. But it doesn't do the same thing for us. So we then had to go to another image. And another. And another. It entices. We focus on it. It soaks away our life. It pulls us from our families. It destroys our productivity at work. It takes everything we have. Why? Because the delight that it brings is short-lived and it has to be continually fed. Whenever you pull away from the source of the attraction, the excitement, when you cut it off for any amount of time, an hour, two hours, three hours, a day, a week, everybody's got a different... You, your brain starts starving for that enjoyment again and you go back to it. The addictiveness of pornography is not in the porn, it's in you. And once it fills you up and it entices you to its way of life, the only thing, and I say this because I know it's true, the only thing that will save you is the Spirit of God. The only thing that will save a crack addict is the Spirit of God. We can teach him some modification techniques and we can give him something else to be addicted to, but trust me, you will be addicted until the day you die unless God changes you. You can't walk away from it. It's too enticing. Young people, listen to me. Please, I know a lot of you don't look at me during service. Look at me. If you are a child, if you are a teenager, look at me. Do not fall prey to sexual perversion on the internet. Do not look at pornography, ever. And if you're with friends who are looking at it, run. They are not your friends when they're doing that. They are seeking to trap you in their trap. Run. Verses 1 through 4 say, if you spark it, that sin will begin to lie to you and it will pull you away from God. Run. Trust me, I know, because I wasn't wise enough to stay away from it. As a young man, I gave into it. And I've had to fight my lifetime now to not fall back into it. Don't do it. 
Don't be delighted in sin. Don't be enticed by its lies. It wants to kill you. It will have you if you will let it. And daddies, while I'm talking to your children, I'm talking to you. Mamas, I'm talking to you. Run. So once pulled in, you've got to have more in quantity and more in perverseness, in wickedness. You, the little things don't excite you anymore, so you have to have more, and you have to have more. It's a trap, and it keeps clawing at you and pulling you down further into the pit. Run from it. That's verses 1 through 4. Don't listen to the sin in your heart. What do we do? We set our minds on the things of God, and we give ourselves to Him fully. And we delight ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 37 is going to tell us that when we delight in Him, He gives us the desires of our heart. What are we to delight in? His covenant love that never fails. His righteous judgment that never pulls back a promise and never judges you wrongly when you are not guilty. We're to love His extravagance and we're to love His abundance. We are given every reason to love Him right here. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I think he references in a way Psalm 36 verse 9 when he says, you, in you or with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see life. Our light, do we see light. At least 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is a reference to this. Jesus is what we are to desire, what we are to delight in, what we are to give ourselves to. Jesus Christ, because He is sufficient. Now, our prayer, our pleading is with God that, he would con that we could continue to experience His love. We don't rest and say, well, I've got God's love, I'm okay. No, we continue to plead with God to give us a desire for Him. We keep going. The Christian walk can be defined by this. If you're not seeking God right now today, the Bible questions whether you are a Christian or not. I don't question it. The Bible does. In multiple places, Jesus gives us this depiction. What does he say to the rich young ruler? Sell all that you have and follow me. Seek after me. Trail me. Mimic me. Be like me. And what does the rich young ruler say? In tears. He couldn't sell what he had because he loved it. And he didn't love Jesus. Jesus is always telling us. Paul is always telling us this. John, the apostle, is always saying if you love the world, if you love sin, if you love lies, you don't love God. And so if you think, oh, I'm a Christian, but I just don't love Jesus today. I'm not seeking Jesus today. Then you're in danger. Repent of that lack of a desire for Jesus and run hard after him. Oh, continue your steadfast love. This is David's prayer. He's begging and pleading with God. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. People in our circles are so guilty of arrogance. I can be so guilty of arrogance. We know doctrine. We got right belief systems. We do good things. And we think, boy, I got it all figured out. Look at me. Be like me. And David's saying, don't let the foot of arrogance come into my life. Don't let me be that way. Let me always be reclining on the breast of Christ, crying out, love me, 
keep loving me with your steadfast love. The way of Christianity is seeking Christ. Delighting in Him now and forever. That's the way of Christianity. If you call yourself a Christian and He is not your delight, there's a problem. If you say, it's been a long time since I've ever wanted Jesus or anything to do with Him, and may I just suggest that you do some real heart searching whether you are a believer or not and not be a cultural believer and not just say, well, I am a Christian. I know I am. I prayed when I was six. I got baptized. I've been a member of a church ever since. I go pretty much all the time, but, but I just think it's overdone that you got to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come on, preacher, you don't do that. I'm telling you. The descriptions of Christianity are about you seeking hard after God, following Jesus, mimicking and imitating Him, being sanctified by His Spirit. If that's not happening then you need to plead with God for it to happen. Today, start, now. Repent of your love of sin and the world and draw near to Christ in prayer. Seek Him. Verse 12, as we close, is a statement about evildoers. He ends his prayer by saying, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. His description is of total destruction for the wicked. So if you delight in sin, your end is you are fallen and you are destroyed and you cannot survive it. You will be utterly destroyed. And his description of God is to cause us to delight in Him and seek after Him. Delight in God. Revelation 22 verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. It's the description of those who believe. They have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. They have the right now to eat from the tree of life. Unlike Adam and Eve, these people have the right to eat of the tree of life again. Their sin has been forgiven. They now are in constant communion with God. They are dependent on Him for His life. And they enter the city by the gate. They go right in because they are welcome. It's their city. Verse 15. Outside the walls of that city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone look who loves and practices falsehood. The description of hell is that it is filled with those who have given themselves to witchcraft, which in Corinthians is described as sin. Idolatry is witchcraft. It's, it's filled with those who are sexually immoral, both homosexual and heterosexual sin. Homosexuality, adultery, fornication, lust, pornea, anything unclean. That's what's in hell. Those who are sorcerers, those who are sexually immoral, those who are dogs, those who are false teachers. I think that's what he's describing there. Those who are murderers, and remember the definition of murder is not physically killing someone, but rather hating them in your heart. 
those who are idolaters, and look, everyone who loves sin. If you are enticed by sin, you are in hell. That's your destiny, in other words. That's where you're headed, outside the city. Jesus said it is out there that they will weep and they will gnash their teeth. 